And Jesus started on his way, and a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and they said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Thank you, Hannah, for reading our scripture today. And again, uh, the house lights are up a little bit. That's because we want you to bring your Bibles. And so if you uh, have your Bible with you, you can open there to Mark chapter 10. And uh, we're going to begin at verse 17. This is the story of the rich young ruler. I might add, if you have a phone, feel free to take it out and bring up your, your Bible app on there as well. Now, let me admit just for a second that I'm changing my mind about the rich young ruler, and it's pretty much Tim Keller's fault. Tim is the one who wrote the book that's inspired this series called Jesus the King. It's a walk through uh, the gospel of Mark. And in Mark chapter 10, a rich young ruler approaches Jesus and asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And first off, I, I, I like the question because of the word inherit, he understands that he has to inherit it and that he can't earn it. But then I don't like the first part of the question because he asks, what must I do? But I must admit, the guy is respectful. He sure seems sincere. By all accounts, he's moral. But Jesus informs him that he lacks just one thing. If he sells all he owns, gives it to the poor, and then comes and follow Jesus, he will find what he's looking for. And the story ends with the young man walking away grieved because he has many possessions. And Mark never tells us what happens to this rich young man. He doesn't say if he comes back a year later. He doesn't say if he never saw Jesus again. He just doesn't say. Maybe it's because in the story, we can find all of our stories. How would you respond? How would I respond? Uh, for years, I have walked away from the story with basically two conclusions. Uh, first, I don't think that Jesus is necessarily anti-rich. But he is presenting the rich young ruler with the one thing that has captured his heart and is therefore his idol. And I say this because... First off, Jesus had many rich friends, and he didn't propose the same scenario to each of them. Jesus didn't go around telling every rich person he met, and he knew many, and many were his friends. He didn't tell them all to go sell all they have. And, and think about the many people who followed God in the Bible. Think about Job, super rich. 
Joseph in Egypt was second in charge below Pharaoh in all of Egypt. King David, King Solomon, massive amounts of wealth. So there's been many wealthy people who followed God, and they were not asked to do this very thing. But this man needed to, because apparently Jesus knew that his wealth and his piety had become idols for him. Secondly, I've, I've realized that this man wasn't a bad man, or I don't even think a manipulative one. He genuinely wanted to be a part of what Jesus was doing. He seems sincere in his quest. I think these conclusions are true. I just now don't think that's the whole story. And like I said earlier, it's Tim Keller's fault. Um, So Jesus is saying to the man in this passage, you have put your faith and trust in your wealth and your accomplishments, but the effort is alienating you from God. Right now, God is your boss, but God is not your savior. And here's how you can see it. I want you to imagine life without your money. I want you to imagine it's all gone. No inheritance, no inventory, no servants, no mansions. All of it is gone. All you have is me. Can you live like that? Why was this man chasing down Jesus in the first place? Why was he so insistent on getting an audience with Jesus. Because by his own admission, his life was not fulfilling. Despite everything he had, all his morality, all of his wealth, all of his importance, despite all of that, he didn't have something. Something was missing. He knew he needed to find something. He was successful, and more likely, every single person who knew him would trade places with him. But he knew it wasn't enough. He knew something was off. And Jesus gives the man a moral checklist to complete the picture for him. Not only was he successful, but it seems like he did it the right way. From all accounts, he was not a cheater or a thief or a liar. He doesn't seem like a slimy politician or a greedy task collector. He's what every good Jew would aspire to be. And all of this is good. But it wasn't enough. Something's missing from his life. And he was gambling that Jesus knew what the answer was. But what he couldn't get his head around is that Jesus is the answer. Keller continues, Jesus says, I'm giving it all away. Why? For you. Now you give away everything to follow me. If I gave away my big all to get to you, can you give away your little all to follow me? I won't ask you to do anything I haven't already done. Keller continues. It's like Jesus is saying, I'm the ultimate rich young ruler who has given away the ultimate wealth to get to you. Now you need to give away yours to get to me. To get Jesus, all you need is need, and need is the one thing this man did not have. Jesus asked him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. And the text says, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, you lack one thing. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. The commandments that Jesus gives have to do with what table of the law? The second table of the law. The second half, the one dealing with other people. The commandments about how you treat other people. Notice he doesn't quote any of the commandments from the first table of the law. The commandments that have to do with God. Um, my main concern is that Jesus is saying to him, there's something deeper there's something more profound that you're missing. There's something more fundamental that I'm looking for. I'm not just looking for exterior, external adherence to the rules. And I'm not just looking for a to-do list of all the moral things you've done. A resume of your moral achievements. My main concern actually is with the chief command. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus is not after the rich man's spiritual resume. He's after the rich man. What Jesus is saying is that the one thing, the sole thing that is keeping you from following God has become your God. It's become your idol. The problem is that your material possessions possess you. This idol utterly defines who you are, what your value is, what your worth is. And this isn't only a rich person problem because it's always someone else who has too much. We tell ourselves greed is other people's problem. But envy over wealth and status is just as treacherous. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wealth and greed get all of us. The love of money easily becomes an idol, no matter your economic situation. It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus gives an illustration. He talks about a camel and a needle. Over the centuries, there have been attempts to lessen the impact of the story, attempts to take the hyperbole away. Uh, it's been suggested that the word camel is actually the word for rope. I don't think that's right. It's hard to pull rope through the eye of a needle. Yeah, sounds like it probably would be. Even more so a camel, though. Who knows? Some have suggested that maybe the eye of the needle refers to a door in Jerusalem that's only for foot traffic. It was called the eye of the needle, and it wasn't big enough for animals. Could a camel possibly squeeze through it? No. But no matter what the illustration is really saying it, the illustration is fairly clear. It is utterly impossible to enter the kingdom of God on our own. We can't do it. That's why I said at the beginning of the message, there is another rich young ruler in the story. He did give up his wealth. He didn't simply obey the commandments. He built on the commandments. He expanded them. See, Jesus taught it's not enough to not murder someone. You should even protect and honor their life. It's not enough to not steal. You should help protect 
other people's things. You should be generous to other people. That's how Jesus lived. On the cross, Jesus gave up all his wealth, all his comfort, and even his very life for us. And not because we deserved it, quite the opposite. This rich young ruler embodies the gospel. Verse 21 is one of the most remarkable passages in all of Scripture. Jesus giving a strict command, go give away all you have. But on the other hand, look at how he does it. Look at the tenderness with the rich young ruler. Look at the compassion, the gentleness. The passage even says Jesus loved him. He loved that he wanted eternal life. He loved that he wanted to try hard. He just knew the only option to finding God was going to be hard for him. But he still loved him. And by the way, from the cross, Jesus also loved the thief next to him. And he loved the crowd that was hurling insults at him. And so he prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them. And from the cross, Jesus also loved you. And then he gave up his life for you. When people ask me, why is Messiah a Lutheran church? Or why is our school a Lutheran school? The answer always starts with a history lesson. See, today is Reformation Sunday. 506 years ago in Germany, an Augustinian monk had a crisis of faith. Kind of like the rich young ruler. He had tried to do everything right. He tried to obey all the rules. I mean, I think the fact that the rich young ruler came to Jesus for more answers shows he knew something was lacking in his faith. Well, Martin Luther realized the same thing 506 years ago. And so he looked for Jesus in the scriptures. Luther searched the scriptures for Jesus. And it was passages like this one I want to show you that showed him what Jesus was all about. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's stop there just for a second. All is a big word. All fall short. All includes drug addicts and thieves and people who commit war crimes. All includes people who are physically violent. All includes people who cheat on their taxes. But all also includes your sweet grandma. You know, the one that never raised her voice at you. All includes Roman soldiers, but it also includes Jewish religious authorities. And all includes this rich young man and a sincere monk in Germany in 1517. All fall short of the glory of God. So, we begin with the spiritual problem. All of us. But the passage continues. Verse 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace, by the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In this passage and others, Martin Luther discovered the gospel. How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is for every single man on the face of the earth to enter the kingdom of God. 
But what Romans is saying is, through the redemption of Jesus Christ, we have been justified freely by his grace. Sins forgiven and salvation given. Or I like to say it this way in an equation. Sins forgiven equals salvation given. For Martin, the church would have to be reformed because it wasn't teaching this. It wasn't teaching it. In fact, the church was selling indulgences so people could buy forgiveness, which that works for rich young rulers. I would imagine the rich young ruler would have bought lots of them. But it doesn't work for the middle class. It certainly doesn't work for the poor. They can't afford to pay for their forgiveness. So Luther called for religious reform. He wrote the famous 95 Theses, spiritual statements of faith. They were meant to correct the false teaching and the practice that was going on at the time. But the key point that he made over and over again in the 95 Theses was this. Forgiveness and salvation cannot be bought or earned. Forgiveness and salvation are a free gift of God received by grace for any and everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He repeated that over and over again in the theses. See, salvation is mission impossible if we are to earn it. I haven't yet seen the new Mission Impossible movie. I tried to get my son to watch it with me last night, and he would not. Uh, but the story is always basically the same, isn't it? Through every single one, it's the same. The mission is always impossible. Well, until they find one miraculous way, it might be able to work. And then it does. And then Tom Cruise gets even more rich and famous. Good for him. What Romans is saying is that salvation is mission impossible if we are to earn it or buy it. It's why the disciples asked Jesus the right question after the camel through the eye of the needle illustration. Who can be saved? Jesus, then who can be saved? It's mission impossible. And Jesus agrees with them. With man, it is impossible. You guys are exactly right. No one can be saved. It's impossible, but not for God, he says. Not for God. All things are possible with God. And that's why I'm here. And that's why I'm going through what I'm going through. And that's why I'm going to do what I'm going to do to make the impossible possible. For Martin Luther, this changed everything. So he took his 95 theses, and he wanted to make them public, and so he nailed them to the church door in Wittenberg. Most people knew he nailed them to the church door, but he also made a copy, and he sent it to the bishop. I like to say that Martin both nailed them and mailed them. In today's lingo, we would say Luther posted it. Protestant churches which are churches that center on the gospel of Jesus Christ, they were born that day. It wasn't new theology. It was a return to the theology and teaching of Jesus. And that's why Messiah 
is a Lutheran church, a uniquely Lutheran church for sure, but Lutheran to the core. Because following Luther was never about styles of worship or dress codes. It does not honor his legacy to focus on styles of worship or dress codes. Those, in fact, were some of the first things that Martin changed. And the spirit of his reformation begs us to do the same. Reformation is about returning to the gospel, to the meat, to the actual teaching of Jesus. I wonder if Martin Luther would like a uniquely Lutheran church like Messiah, a church where found people find people. See, the lost aren't commanded to go to church. The church is commanded to go to the lost. Let me say that again. The lost are not commanded to go to church. The church is commanded to go to the lost. Or our second value, save people, serve people. Would, would Martin Luther like a church like that? See, Jesus' life was marked by service and sacrifice. Teddy Roosevelt said, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Church, we got to serve people. A church where faith and real life intersect. See, Jesus ministered to the practical needs of normal people. At Messiah, our teaching should help you tackle real life issues, situations, questions, and emotions that lead to encounters with a real and a living God. A church where life is better connected. We all need to disciple someone, and we all need to be discipled. So who are you mentoring, and who's mentoring you? This is one part of the faith that you can't do alone. It's why we prioritize groups. It's why we prioritize next-gen ministries. And a church where the faith of the next generation matters now. The church is just one generation away from extinction. I bet all of you have known a church that was one generation from extinction, and now it practically is. It's gone. It's about to be gone. They can't pay the bills. They don't have a pay the bills problem. They have a mission problem, specifically a next generation mission problem. See, the church is just one generation away from extinction, or it's just one generation away from explosion. How we invest in the next generation will determine what happens next. And at Messiah, we believe in the future of the church. And that's why I think Martin Luther would be very happy to be a part of a church like Messiah. I think he would agree. This is what it means to be Lutheran. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it looks like to follow Christ. Because Martin knew that Jesus broke the traditions that valued tradition over people. Jesus broke traditions that value traditions over people. Kids, can I have your attention just for a moment? It's only two more days till a really big holiday. Halloween. All Hallows' Eve. It started out as a religious event, then it morphed into a spooky, scary night, and now it's just an excuse to dress silly and have a party. Um, I'm sure many of you have already picked out your costumes and you can't wait to get some candy. I'm all about it. My son is a football player at Lutheran High. He's going to be a football player 
His two-month-old baby sister is going to be his football. Yeah, that's the costume. But did you know that Halloween began with the Celts 2,000 years ago? The Celts were a native people of Ireland and northern France and England. November 1st was their New Year's Day and the day when cold winter began. More people died in the dark, cold winter time, and they believed the night before the new year, the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead became blurred. They believed that October 31st, All Hallows' Eve, was the night that the ghosts of the dead returned to earth. And the Romans conquered northern Europe But this belief began to merge with the Roman belief. And by the 7th to 9th centuries, the Roman Catholic Church began celebrating the dead in much the same way as the Celts. They had bonfires on All Hallows' Eve, parties. They dressed up in costumes, usually as angels and saints, and even as devils. It wasn't until much later that trick-or-treating began to be practiced. One of the origins of trick-or-treating, which again is old, was the making of soul cakes. Instead of leaving food on your doorstep for the ghost um, so they wouldn't haunt your home, families began to pass out soul cakes to people with the agreement that they would pray for your dead relatives. It's on this holiday when everyone was talking about death and the afterlife. October 31st, that Martin Luther posted, nailed and mailed, his 95 theses. October 31st, 1517. This was a watershed moment in history. A moment when social media was new. And Luther's voice could get out. His internet age, his social media revolution was the printing press. Without it, I believe, there would be no reformation. The church today should pay attention. We should use everything at our disposal to get the gospel out. He also chose Halloween for a very intentional reason. He realized this wasn't just a religious debate. Luther said this was a matter of people's salvation. This was about life and death. And he knew on Halloween that people were focused on death and what happens to the dead. So kids, dress up, have fun, eat some candy. Not too much. You'll end up doing a Jonah and the whale thing. I've had kids. Some of them experience that. But have fun this Halloween, but also realize There is a bigger reason to the season. Because Halloween is also about heaven and hell and the fate of every person who has ever lived. And for Luther, this topic was so important. And so he did something about it. And because he did it, the Catholic church he loved and wanted to reform, they put him on trial. And at the end of his statement of faith, he explained that He just can't agree with the court because they're not, they are taking grace out of the gospel. They're missing the gospel. Then he closed with these words. 
I neither cannot and I will not retract anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen.